I'm Billy Chen, and uh, I'm an architect in New York with a person who will then speak about himself. We're partners uh, in life and in work. Yeah, and I'm Todd Williams, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be with Billy, but it's a great pleasure and a new pleasure to be with you guys uh, on Zoom and, and our student colleagues and friends at, at Yale. Uh, we love the school. I'm glad you're you're there, and I'm glad you're doing this thing. So we thank you. Thank you guys so much for being here today, jumping over all of these, you know, virtual meeting hoops. We're learning a lot <laughs> about this right along with you guys. Yeah. Well, we, we're having a very very slow day, and uh, you're speeding it up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's perfect that you're having a slow day because we wanted to talk to you about slowness. <laughs> so. As Jess mentioned earlier, Paprika's theme for this semester kind of in reaction to the, quite frankly, chaos that was last semester going in COVID world was that we all need to kind of slow down a bit and really take time to process what's going on in the world around us to really produce thoughtful work. And we all kind of felt like we were rushing into our assignments and trying to make statements about everything going on, but there was absolutely no time. So Jess found your essay from 1999 on slowness, and we both read it and loved it and thought it was super relevant to today, not only in the fastness of the world, but in architecture and all of our technological components. Yeah, Um, especially in school. I think Grace and I both share the same opinion that we feel like sometimes things feel very rushed and assignments feel rushed and you don't really have time to really just sit down and like think through a design. It's kind of one thing after the next and it's also kind of that is the way of the world too. But I think reading your article really just kind of brought into perspective how things have changed and shifted. And I guess kind of that's how we wanted to start off asking kind of what your opinions are about like about this change, especially even since you wrote your essay in 1999. And like as these new technologies emerge, we're expected to work faster and more efficiently. But do you think the profession will ever overcome this obsession with doing things fast? And can there be a return to slowness? Well, I, I mean, I we felt a return to slowness last summer, last spring, pardon me, and this last year because... A couple of things have happened to us. We have, we're not getting new work in, but more importantly, we actually left the city and went out to our place that we normally spend a few days in and spent then six months there. And what that allowed Billy and me to do, even though we, Billy's often said we've been together twice the length of any other couple because we spend... Daytime, nighttime, there's no break. There's no break, Um, but... Actually, it gave us the chance to slow down and to see the seasons, uh, to do long walks, and actually to change our relationship, doing, as we did two nights ago, yoga at night together, which we've never done before. So I do think that though the world has sped up, and I should say, I think that the Zoom enables us, particularly we saw this in school, to really, really focus, like you two people are in our world right now. And I can't escape you and you can't escape us. Um, it does feel like there's an intensity here that actually allows more to be done, more the communication to be, uh, I think, 
very, very direct. And, uh, and so we accomplished more, but actually, are we, is it really the right thing to accomplish? I mean, are we asking the questions we need to ask? And that's really the challenge that I see now. I do believe that we live in a faster world, but there's no reason we shouldn't continue to use that essay as we have ever since 1999 to continue to remind ourselves to take things a little more slowly. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things um, that thing that something like walking does, um, because none of us are really traveling, um, so we're walking a lot, or sometimes biking, but walking really slows you down. It sort of turns you back uh, into a child again when you're walking along and you notice things that you haven't had time to notice. And I realize that peripheral vision um, which is, you know, the things that you just catch out of the corner of your eye are more possible uh, by being slower. And in a way, the Zoom culture doesn't really allow for peripheral vision. It's, you know, you're looking at the screen and those other things that I think feed us creatively uh, because they aren't predetermined, nor are they something that we create ourselves. They're things that come in, um, are missing. And I think we all want to have that sense of a sort of serendipity that happens um, when you haven't planned it. And so the sort of moving actually physically moving more slowly and staying in one place um, to me has been a great gift in terms of slowing things down, in terms of allowing other things to come in and thinking about, you know, last night we were walking in Central Park, what the snow does to a landscape, which because we've been walking and walking here, so they're so constantly felt incredibly familiar. And then somehow last night it felt, we felt al almost as if I was lost again. So that's a kind of um, incredible gift and realization to have something familiar made anew. Um, and that happens because um, we're allowing those things to come into our lives because we need them to come into our lives, um, even as you know, we're sort of more blinded. Well, I think, I think one of the problems of, of, of our life is, is, is being too efficient. Uh, <laughs> it's just exchanging information to get things done. Certainly that's both a problem and a power that you, we have here with the Zoom with you is we can get a lot of communication done in a very short period of time, but it's hard to um, listen to the other person uh, Especially another person in the same space as you are, when you're when you're moving too fast. Last night, I mean, my vision. Billy said this feels like Doctor Zhivago. I felt that it felt like time had turned back to 1885 <clears throat> or earlier, when people were moving and the, the landscape changed so much, it became unfamiliar. And I think the insecurity of of uh, not having the answers is actually allowing them to emerge from the person next to you. And again, I think that, I think I really do look forward to getting back in the studio 
again, I think we are much less efficient. And there's something uh, magical about sensing the people in the room and the, and the questions, the uncertainty. We're working with a, a group, uh, Boston Valley Terracotta. So strangely enough, they're not in Boston. They're in upstate New York and Buffalo. But um, they, so we're, they have a program where they ask different groups of people, including students, to sort of try to um, imagine new um, directions for terracotta to go in, which is a ceramic material that's glazed. And they, you know, so it's very interesting in this sort of interchange because we don't actually know where we're going. Um, but we have the time because they're quiet and they're doing research, we're quiet and we're doing research, that certain ideas sort of just get thrown out. And then the other person takes the idea and takes it a little bit further and then they throw it back. So it's like a, a kind of slow um, round robin game, which um, is once again, like serendipity or peripheral vision, something that surprises you so you can go someplace else. So, um, you know, Todd did a series of very rough kind of drawings and then somebody else in our studio whose father is a mason, so he knows about sort of laying up material, but he also is a very hand person. So he actually sewed together these strips of leather. And then we presented those to the, the guy, and there's a technical guy there who's thinking, well, you know, we can ram press this, we can, you know, do it this way. And then there's another guy who does glazes. And so we threw out these very rough things to them, and then they will, on the one hand, try to figure out how it can be produced. On the other hand, try to imagine what the colors and how they will pool in the sort of different textures that um, Todd and Alex came up with. So that sort of interchange which is a slower interchange than when when you send somebody a you know a, a technical drawing mm-hmm. as if you as if you already knew everything and then they were going to do everything that you told them to do results in something that I think is um, exciting to us. Well, it is, and this <clears throat> the guy one of the, the guy who because. Boston Valley Terracotta has actually manufactures this stuff up in, Billy says, Buffalo. But their research guy is in Kansas City. And, you know, there's the Kansas City Art Institute there. And uh, Andy, who's the guy in Kansas City, is the one that's going to make this stuff. And so it was fun to show him this. And, and you know, the conventional attitudes will send you a, an architectural drawing to tell you exactly what we mean, Andy. Well, first... You know, sorry, I'm not going to do that architectural drawing. And secondly, I think you have more knowledge in your hands, Andy, in just saying how you might want to move this thing forward. And so he said, look, I'll start to make these prototype glazes and I'll start to send them to you one week after another, which is really exciting. So, look, we, we don't know where this is going to go and maybe we'll never do a terracotta facade at all. But... <laughs> Um, it's very, very important to us, and, and I'm happy to say that a few of the other people in the studio are joining on this on this yeah. journey. I mean, the thing is... Of inefficiency, uh, incredible inefficiency. <laughs> well, <laughs> we love it. The, I mean, in that essay, 
it was really talking about the hand and how do we retain yeah. the sense of the hand. And on the one hand, I think, on the one hand, I think that um, we don't want to be, it, you know, we need to live in a practical world where things are built because this is for us not about theory, it's about life and it's about use. On the other hand, if we lose the sense of touch, then there is no place for memory to get caught. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, this combination of understanding how something can be produced by a factory, but at the same time carry the sense that a human being has interacted with it, um, that we're doing with Boston Valley, is really a kind of small encapsulation of what we try to do in all our work. I mean, we're not trying to pretend that somebody's going to be hand chiseling and making everything themselves. But at the same time, if we, architecture is about the holding of humanity in a place that is special. And mm -hmm. we need to make those places so that they can touch people, not so that they're simply uh, a kind of machine. I never believed in the sort of machine for living. But I, I, if we, we also have to compete with people who say, look, it's much faster, it's much less expensive if we do it by machine. And if we mass produce it and we know the quality and the dimensions, I don't want to kid ourselves right. that this is, we're just living in this world of the hand. No, I we're not. We're, the, the world of the hand only exists as a necessary component in the world of the man-made, the production, productive. It is a component. It yeah. is definitely a component. But, but to pretend we can erase it is... is I, I, we, well, certainly we don't believe in it, and, and I, I'll live my life that way. Uh, so, you know, that's the way we've got to live our lives. And, we, and I think that we find we have enough people that feel that way that we can do good work in this world. Well, I mean, but we I, also have to, I mean, I should say there's lots of places where we just have to choose something from it. Sure, so there's a T-shirt yeah. that is a mass-produced T-shirt. Yeah. Then I have yeah. a scarf that, you know, somebody yeah. actually wove. But I, I also think that what's interesting to me, I mean, in talking with people in the studio who are, have been producing a whole series of drawings on Revit, and it, you know, it is the sort of basic language now of um, how things get built. But our, and our team is um, very proud of their Revit drawings because they have made them beautiful rabbit drawings. You know, I was so surprised when the woman who's running the job said, we have produced beautiful rabbit drawings. And I thought, there is such a thing as beautiful rabbit drawings where you're caring still about the line weights, you know, which used to be done by this pen or that pen. Um, and yeah, this sort of art to technology. And yeah, yeah, I found that very moving. And I think that that's true within every manufacturing process too. I mean, we need to give credit not just to the people that are on the surface of buildings that are do the underpinnings of the buildings. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So um, I'm curious, uh, I read both of you had had some fine art education and 
uh, kind of biasly asking this question. I come from a sculpture background. So um, we've talked a little bit about art and beauty and kind of how to meet that with practicality, but how do you find that experience and that education with the, the fine art world come together with your architecture and your practice? And how does that affect maybe the, the, the slowness or the consideration you put into your handcraft and materials? Well, we, we ask our clients to slow down because we believe that this dialogue between the two of us, where we're not always on the same page, is just as important as the dialogue between the two of us and the client when we're not on the same page to, to, to take our time. They, of course, under, they do actually understand that, but they also say, we've got a schedule and please don't <laughs> vary from it or you're going to, we'll dump you. So that's, that is a problem. But I, Billy really has the fine art background. And I think Billy, when she came to work for me many years ago, uh, restored what I, was latent in my background because I also I had, uh, I had loved art and was afraid of being an artist and, and uh, was very happy to study architecture and to work for Richard Meyer. And the, but I'd left something behind, and I think Billy helped restore that. Nonetheless, even before I started, when I would have projects like doing a kitchen renovation, I always would try to make it work for the client, but I always said from day one, we need to do something which is amazing, which goes beyond whatever you think might be there, but which I feel great about and which I hope you feel great about too. But I'll follow everything you want me to do, but I just need to find something in this work somewhere that makes that lifts it off. And you, you have to ask that of everything you do in life. I mean, I think I, Todd and I probably look much more at art than we do at architecture. Um, yeah. I mean, the work that's behind us is all done by people we know, um, and some of whom, you know, are really friends. And for me, the there's a freedom which I never... It's not my personality to take advantage of that freedom because I'm not a particularly free-form kind of person um, in art, which is why, in the end, architecture, for me, is more satisfying because it's somebody else's problem who, and you're trying to solve it. And there's, I get great satisfaction from just sort of trying to solve a problem. But I admire and find inspiration in a kind of freedom which isn't trying to solve anybody else's problem but their own problem, which is what I think artists do. They're solving their own problems. Um, so I, I find that mm-hmm. a continuing inspiration, as well as um, the art that speaks to me the most is art that ha- is about a kind of emotion. So whether it's visual art or whether it's, you know, performance, dance, theater, it is always emotional. And at its very end, it's not as if I want to be making architectural spaces that are operatic and therefore kind of overwhelming, but I want them to have a kind of, both have an emotion and allow the space for other people to have emotions. Um, I think one of the problems with architecture today is that it's all about what the architect thinks. 
Yeah. And so it's the architect's emotion. But the, like, there's no room in there for anybody else to have an emotion. So anybody else that comes mm-hmm. is a spectator to the architect's emotion. And yeah. that's very selfish, actually. Um, and Todd and I, I've always believed that, mm-hmm. um, that it's, it's a service. Um, I just got a, a letter indirectly from Anna Herringer. She's a, um, she does a lot of uh, work for NGOs, and she does very, very beautiful um, oh, yeah. work in Africa. Yeah. And she said architecture is a tool for helping people. And I think we probably feel that it's more than a tool, but I think that it is very much in service to people. And then, as Todd says, you also try sometimes to serve so well that you transcend it. That doesn't always happen. And sometimes service in a very beautiful way is good enough. Sometimes you can transcend it. But in the end, it should be primarily about the people that are there, not primarily about... And we, we can we can err on both sides of this, and we do, because we're human. vulnerable human. I mean, we sometimes completely undercut spaces where there is ordinary and could be done by any hack architect. I'm, I, can, I can be pretty st- tough with myself and with all of us when we produce something that feels really way, way below the standards of any kind of level of excellence. But then there's also being too self-indulgent, uh, and we've, right. we've done that too. So we're always trying to... We're trying to... Find we don't have that. the answer, but we're... Well, we'll it certainly helps to be in discussion with Billy because, uh, you know, when you're working alone, you don't have a balanced opinion. And, right. uh, and, there, and if someone is a sycophant, as maybe some people were with our previous president, you know, you, you find that it, one veers way off track um, trying to please another person or him or her, trying to please only yourself. Yes. And, and that stuff, and we are all vulnerable to that. So, uh, yeah, that's a, those are really good reasons to remember to slow down because this, is, this takes time, this relationship stuff. Mm-hmm. We're both here in New Haven. Um, I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, spent a couple years in New York between undergrad and grad. Um, I got my undergraduate degree from Washington University in St. Louis in sculpture. And I'm an MR1 here right now. This is our second semester. Yeah. Um, and I'm from Connecticut, actually. I did my undergrad at Northeastern um, studying architecture. And... Now I'm here. I took a year off in between to work and, yeah, enjoying it, even though it's on Zoom. It's yeah, been good well, so far. You get a full year when everybody's at school together. I, yeah. You know, things are more normal. I don't think they'll ever be normal. But. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you guys talk about community and relationships because when we all came here, I think um, we were in the same studio yeah. section last semester and... 
our section in particular came in with a very like clear vision of what we wanted our studio environment to be. Mm -hmm. And like, despite all of the challenges, we really wanted it to be like a supportive and collaborative, interactive to whatever extent it could be um, place to like think and I think despite everything, we we really made kind of a little family for ourselves here awesome. so far. It's it's kind of beautiful to look back on. I don't know what you think, Abby. Yeah, I think it could have gone very differently, but I feel like we all kind of had the same goal in mind. And I think just like the importance of having a community in school and especially in architecture, because it's a very collaborative field. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what you did is you <clears throat> resist. You resisted the the uh, problematic of atomization being sort of blown apart and living in your own universe. You actually worked hard to come together, and it then made that more fruitful. We we I mean I think that's one of the great lessons of this, which is not to be complacent with the way things are. They're always changing, and there's always something that can help you to push against that thing which blows us apart and you have to work hard to be a community. I mean, I think that the um, in our studio last semester, the students who were in New Haven um, did remarkably well in sort of forming a group. Well, I think even the ones who were in I China. I think the ones who were in China also participated and were wonderful as a part of the class, but it wasn't the same for It was them. harder for them because what, of the time change. Well, yeah, yeah, but beyond that, I think somehow, even if you're not in the same room, there's some weird thing about proximity and being in New Haven yeah. and sort of seeing the same gray day, like yeah. <laughs> what happens in New Haven for a lot of days, <laughs> is just um, yeah. more binding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I think the the best thing and that I miss the most is being together. And and it is the times of being together, just the laughing and, and uh, or in my case, growling or whatever it might be. It doesn't matter. But being together and sort of sensing the chemistry from one another and in the space you're in, that's so important. So I think that we can work more apart. I'm, right now, I mean... We we have two people in the studio now. We're ten minutes walk away, you know. Just talking, just the words you said make me feel like we should be in the studio. Well, I mean, I think it, it, it's much more fluid. But what I what is also very clear is that anything that involves a, a real material, a color, yeah. a, any of those discussions cannot be done um, digit, on Zoom or anything because everybody's screen is different. So we can't even agree on whether we like something or not if it's a real thing because it looks different to everybody slightly. And so what is already a kind of, um, you know, sort of mysterious agreement about the qualities of a, of a you know, the material becomes even more mysterious. It's true, but how, how could you guys not know uh, what it, this is in my hand without seeing it on the screen or, or, or seeing it in person? So I do think that, that um, the, the screen does bring things vividly 
into focus, but you don't know its weight. Mm-hmm. You you don't or know temperature. the temperature. The you don't uh, you probably can't read the markings on the back. So um, yeah, the edges. So I think um, I do think that the, the richness of the experience of being together and connecting with whether it's that drawing that Oz and our group made, or the painting behind you, or the thing that I just picked up. This this contact is absolutely essential, uh, and to the experience of, of life and to, of architecture. It's almost like since there's a, a chemistry between people, there's a chemistry between objects and things yeah. that you can touch as well. And you can't quite read it the same way exactly what you're saying, Todd. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because um, when we worked on the Barnes Foundation, um, the collection um, that Albert Barnes put together, people have always thought was so peculiar because hardware, he has like little bric-a-brac, little chests, paintings. And, um, but when you're there, it makes so much sense because there is a relationship between things that you, in an image, looks kind of arbitrary. But when you're there, you completely understand why, you know, something that is, you know, a little pot painted pot that has a little swirl on it has a relationship to a Matisse but when you first see it you know on a screen or an image it just looks like well that's kind of weird and I don't get that but when you're there there's like a secret language of things to things that you can only understand when you're there with the things which is true with architecture too or or imagine by the way because I think that I think that, oh, a secret language that maybe you're not deciphering, but you're imagining exactly, yourself. Exactly, yeah. exactly. I mean, in a way, it's your it's your interpretation being different from mine. Uh, Barnes had an interpretation. Look, everyone thinks they know what Dr. Barnes was about, but I have the feeling he didn't know what he was about, just as we don't know <laughs> what he was about. Really. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, you know, there's there's a general dartboard that one throws their the dart at, but uh, you know. It's my dartboard or it's Billy's dartboard, how that feels like it's struck you. Um, Which goes back to the sort of um, importance of having enough time being slow enough to actually be somewhere rather than look at something. I think this could be an interesting connection to the project you guys did at the the Biennale with with all the boxes. <laughs> I can't remember the title at the moment, but Wonder Wondercomber, yeah. yes, yeah. thank you. Um, but it's it's interesting to think about that as like a connection with people over space and time as well, with mm-hmm. not maybe like a, a digital version of them, but a collection of things that represent who they are. And I, I don't know, it's maybe it's the same kind of communication, like through this box where you're only receiving a certain amount of like who Abby and right. I are represented through purely through what we're yeah. showing you. Um, Not very much. Our little, our nice white blank wall. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is um, if you, it, it is not the way the world communicates today. Not many people saw it. I actually really believe in what that project was about and what it did. But if Mostly, you want, for example, to uh, to let a person know the diagram of what it works about. That's why Warhols are are a particular language. Generally, they're not they're not a 
a very varied language. There are other artists that have extremely tight languages so that you know that this is their voice, this is what they're doing. But the exploration and the richness is is pretty limited. You know, they're controlling the edges rather clearly. And uh, and we look for those clear edges in order for us to understand things. Uh, I mean, it's very, very hard to decipher anything if you're always in a, in a clutter of, of, of richness. Right. Certainly, as you get older, I think that we, we believe more and more the richness of life. And I think, I don't know, we're going to start to take things out of our life. You mean... Uh, sort of remove sim- shit. <coughs> Simplify? Well, I mean, you, you want to do that, but I, I don't know. My parents have been calling it the year of the purge for yeah. Yeah. five yeah. years, where they slowly take one item out of our basement and then buy something else. <laughs> yeah. So, what they're purging, maybe, I don't know, something from 1975? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It seems like, a, anyway, a good a good sort of plan to try to have fewer, have less, yeah. be, be with less. Well, I, I don't know about any of that. And I'm, <laughs> I don't I actually. Like, oh, sorry. I always feel like everything that you have has a memory to it, though. Yeah. I guess, like, personally, like, all of my little things that I have around my apartment or I know. at my parents' house are all have a memory. So it seems when you're getting rid of something, it seems like you're getting away with like a getting I don't know losing a memory yeah no I, I it's kind of sad and sometimes it's bittersweet but yeah so know. do you do you, when you or even now do you think have do you feel like things have feelings oh yes, yes. <laughs> well do you do you I'm trying not to absolutely but, but but I still do, but I really, really am trying hard to accept that things are things yeah. and they're not people. But I, I, I know I've spent so much of my life, and particularly more when I was younger, I really felt like everything had a feeling mm-hmm. and I was sure. hurting its feelings. I mean, we played a game with our son, which I love to talk about when he was a child, and it was, um, would you rather be a floorboard or a bottle of Perrier? And, and it, it all, you know, and it all comes from, like, if you were a floorboard, you know, what, would you feel happier as a floorboard or would you feel happier as a, as a bottle of Perrier? And, it, and that, all, that all comes from that head, which believes that um, well, some things people have feelings. Think- and, well, no, I just want to, so I think that's why... You're in architecture school because you believe that things have feelings. Okay. Oh, that's right. Well, it's, it's a, and we recently played it with my grandchildren, and my granddaughter was super clear about it's each very one. Very practical. Of, very practical. She had a, an answer for everything, whereas my grandson had no idea. So, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, this is where it's a, that's certainly a battle. We st- we also have that, like your parents, and do we purge? We might say we're purging, but basically we're just putting it in another little. Uh, it's, it's a different, like, mental box. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just keep it, but smaller. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I totally agree with you guys. I think that part of what we innately do as 3D designers or designers of space, of objects, of anything tactile, is 
like imbuing it with feeling. So the the impetus to make everything have a, a character or memory or represent something like really vital to you is yeah. it's just kind of there. Yeah. Well, that, and that's why, by the way, being of service is a good thing. Um, because it gets you out of, of that. It, it's mm. another person saying, look, I don't give a shit about you. This, what, I don't care about, I don't care about the doorknob. I care about the thing that it latches. Just give me a goddamn doorknob and a latch and a door. And we're saying, but these rooms should meld together. The spaces are one. Oh, but let me... Separation, little separation will allow you to be both in a separate space and be together. Uh, but the oh, world's okay. best doorknob. Do you remember the world's best doorknob? World's best doorknob. You don't remember the world's... I remember the world's best. <laughs> so it was in Brazil, and it, it was... Um, Pedro and Marisa, they had an, a, a door handle which was taken from the grasp of their father. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it would be like you took a piece of clay and you had, and your father. I thought that was creepy. Squeezed it. No, no. Was it? No, it, it was. It's, a, it's, it wasn't no, the no, world's best. I hated it. I that love guy. this. I love this. So you squeezed it and then they used that as the mold. Right. To to make a positive, right? No, that, no the fact so that, that at least it wasn't the architect. My no, God. no, no. So that when so that they felt whenever they opened that door, yeah, they were sort of holding the hand of their father. No, that's that, that, the world's best door handle. No, no, no. That that is a thing. That is a thing that has feelings, well, and gives you feelings. And I think really a great thing for architects is to create doorknobs of their own handle, so that every client will. <laughs> <laughs> my, my goddamn architect! <laughs> that fucker! It's very poetic, but it's also a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely a little bit creepy. <laughs> Depends how you look at it. Well, I think probably nobody else knows. You know, anybody just thought it was a kind of like. Odd-shaped door Enough handle. Of the story. Okay, I just like that. I like that door handle. Glad, uh, I had forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's 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 details like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Leave a few, leave a few leave a few physical artifacts of yourself behind, and make sure they're actually also lots of them of other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And at the same time, let's make sure that we also can kind of clean the slate a little bit to leave Mother Earth intact as possible. Yeah. yeah. We don't need order personalities. Um, so, but you were in sculpture, and then you decided to shift a little bit. Why? Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, it's actually it has a lot to do with service. Um, when I was in undergrad, a lot of my work was about like welcoming in communities and interacting with people and making spaces where everyone could share a feeling. Um, and I kept getting to this point where I just, I wanted more people. I wanted more interaction. I wanted more people to come together and feel something together. 
And I did spend a lot of time with the architects while I was in school. Um, <laughs> I would just kind of be bopping in and out of the, the sculpture and architecture building. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> They're great, though. Um, and I learned a lot from them, and I took some architecture classes. And I, I realized I wanted to kind of see if there was an in-between or an overlap or how to bring them together in some way that could make art architecture and architecture art in the same way that it was giving something to people, but, oh, you know, practically. Yeah. <laughs> I think and that's the, right. And then the, also, so if, does architecture, since you began, since your undergraduate degree was in architecture, does it continue at Yale to feel like the direction that you imagined it would be when you first started as a freshman? <laughs> no. Not, you know, freshman, freshman. I, no, I mean, I think even when I started architecture school, it wasn't really what I was expecting. I think when I was in high school, I actually took some architecture classes and we did like hand drawing and it was so like beautiful and very tactile and got to use like mylar and you'd come out of class with your hands covered in graphite and and like looking back at it now I really appreciate it because I kind of got thrown into just like learning AutoCAD and everything seemed very like and almost got like too technical for me um Mm -hmm. and very like kind of rushed but I mean, I, I still liked the, like, creating and designing and being able to come out of a class and just, like, have created something. I think, like, the act of just, like, being able to, like, get your thoughts onto paper and have this, like, kind of output, like, beautiful output um, was what kind of kept me kept me in the field and kept it going kept me going (laughs) and also the community too I've always like yeah I played like sports growing up and like the like being on a team like I love being on a team and working with people and I think like architecture has a lot of that especially once you're working um I like I knew I could never be someone who was just like sitting in a cubicle at a desk by myself like punching in numbers for something that I'll never see in the long run um so yeah. Now the the community of architecture is it's definitely what drew me in as well. Like yeah. it's almost addicting. Like once you start hanging yeah. out with architects, you're like. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one one of the things that architectural education does, and probably I think actually any sort of design education, but I think architects in general, you learn you're we're such a judgmental group. <laughs> you cannot go anywhere with architects where. They aren't in some way, you know, this is good, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, this is okay, this is medium okay, this is good. Um, <laughs> and, it, and in a certain way, it slightly separates you from general society because nobody knows what you're talking about. Like, why is that good? And, you know, but it's, um, well, that's it why definitely is a way of seeing the world. Yeah. You, I think it changes the way you see the world. I think another reason that Billy and I so enjoy looking at art is because um, if we're constantly critiquing the world in terms of architecture, then it means we're we're continuously critiquing our colleagues. And the moment you critique your colleagues, you're critiquing yourself. When we're looking at art, 
actually feel much more free to go in and say, well, which is the first painting you'd steal from this gallery? That's, our, that's always our first question. It's like, what would you steal? And then we, we walk around the space and then come back together and, and often surprising number of times. times we steal the same thing. Yeah. After all this time, we do pretty much steal the same thing. Same taste. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> You'd end up with more, more stuff. <laughs> 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 We've never successfully managed to steal anything, but you know, it's just like the idea yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I don't know if we have time for one last question, yeah. but sure. uh, I wanted to the discussion about community and in conjunction with COVID and that whole debacle makes me think a lot about um, public space and kind of landscape to what you were alluding to, Todd. Um, how do you imagine, and this is purely speculative question, but like, how do you imagine like architects' involvement in like creating a collective space or a public space will, I don't know, potentially evolve after this is all over, both practically and ideologically? Well, first, <laughs> I mean, public space is, is quite a grand statement. I mean, are we talking about creating a piazza or are we talking about a park or what it is? <clears throat> because you're at school and, and we have a profession, you, we're often thinking about things, architecture as a thing, you know, here's a mm -hmm. thing. So it, I think it is important to both think about the thing, which is architecture, that you're going to be an architect after all. You do want to make stuff. But I think that issue of space is, is an interesting one. And that's why I think <clears throat> if you're going to do something on the surface of the earth, an archi architect may as well take responsibility for it. So you should think of curbs as, I'm sorry, public space. A curb defines the difference between well, what was a street and now is a cafe and a street versus a sidewalk, which is democratic space. Why is that? Why is that street actually not democratic space, space for everyone? Why is it reserved for the privacy of cars? So I think it's just, you just keep asking these questions and you have an opinion. I don't think it's the driver, but I think allowing yourself to be in that arena allows you to think of the space between things. Space between. The space between the two of us, for example. Not me versus her, but the actual space between things. And there's space everywhere between things. The best space is the space between things. It's the, it's the space between the two of you, the difference between the two of you, or the space that allow, that you walk in, in the studio, between you and, and the walls of the studio, uh, the conversation in the street, and so on. So I just continue to think about how important that is, but recognize you're an architect and you have a voice in that. It is not, it's not a civil engineer. I'm sorry. It's not a traffic engineer. I mean, it's not a tree guy. It's, it's you. You have something to say about this.